I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Ruler Podcast, supported by Lacquer, bicycle insurance powered by the community. Well, later I'll be in the Basque Country, the very heart of Spanish cycling, talking to local company Orbea. We'll also hear from the mysterious cycling mole, the tipster's tipster, who knows every inch of every stage like the best DS. But first, a welcome return for Ruler's desire editor, Stuart Clapp, who's been roaming the world, but is now safely back in Essex. Stuart, last time I saw you, it was at Biggin Hill, I think, but you've been all over the place since then. I have been all over the place. Some, you know, I've, I've it's been a while. Some say not long enough, but I'm here anyway. I'm back. Uh, yes, it was at Biggin Hill, and that issue is now out now. And that's gone down very well, hasn't it? Yeah, it has. It's gone down really well. I've, um, I'm well chuffed with it. I didn't know that it was going to be the cover of the members issue, but yeah, it is banging. I couldn't believe it. I've like, you know, covers are, uh, you know. They're pretty special, aren't they? And to have that and something that you were a tiny part of, obviously Benedict shot it. I just sort of, you know, just booked the venue. Um, and uh, But yeah, really cool. I'm well chuffed with it. In fact, that shoot led to the one following it, which we shot last week. Because we were wondering at the time, how do you top uh, Biggin Hill for a photo shoot? And we, uh, we weren't quite sure how you're going to do it. No. In fact, we joked, didn't we? We said, oh, you need to get in touch with NASA. And, um, but no, we, we didn't. In fact, someone got in touch with me. Phil Healy, he sent me a message on Instagram and said, uh, what do you think of this place for a location for Desire? And it's a place called um, Tolerton Hall. And at Tolerton Hall is the, uh, Ian, his friend of his, runs a uh, supercar dealership called Cayman's International, right? Um, in fact, there's an, another plug for Instagram. I should be on commission here. Um, but if you look them up on there, you can see the cars that they had there. And this guy's got like the most extensive Lamborghini collection in in the UK or Europe or something. It's crazy. So yes, we shot that last week. Which I'm and I'm not necessarily a car man, but when you look at some of those cars, like especially the older classic, like the Countach, I think you pronounce it, and he had an original Fiat 500 there and a Ferrari F40, which we shot a bike up against, right? So so we had a bike up against it. It was the last thing that we shot during the day. And he had a, he held a, um, he had a Vespa as well there. He had 37 miles on it from new. It was like mint. That was going to cost me a fortune because I quite like, quite fancied that. Um, and more in the ballpark that I can afford. But yeah, so this F40, where the bike went up against it, 
and the guy's coming around with us and he's sort of showing us around all day and he's been moving cars around and bits and pieces and uh we had this bike lit up against the f14 and he and i said well yeah better go easy there you know you could buy my you know you, you could buy a house for that and he went you could buy a really nice house for that and i said right and how, how, how much is a ferrari f40 then 1.4 million pounds for a car oh my goodness um but yeah it was it was a really good shoot i'll tell you what i like about it i'm talking about this but none of you're going to see it but then you know benedict drops a few pictures in on social media occasionally but the colors in this one is 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 quite special because they're all really, really vibrant red and greens of cars and black it just looks really cool i can't wait can't wait for that one to come out and also last time uh we spoke you were about to go to japan if you'd have asked me before I went, right, I was going to, oh, I've told people, like Benedict, who shoots the, the stuff for us, um, I said to him, I was going to Japan, and he went, oh, it's my favourite country, I love it. And I was, people were more excited about me going than I was excited about going. It was like, yeah, <laughs> it wasn't really on my bucket list. I just thought, haven't been to Japan. But if you asked me when I go back, I would, uh, even the question is, I would I'd start packing my suitcase. It was amazing. I've, Never been anywhere quite like it. Tokyo was exceptionally clean and everyone is incredibly friendly. It was just amazing. And uh, then we went to Kyoto, which I think is what one of the, I think it won an award for um, the, the best uh, Asian city for cycling or something, which I, I don't doubt. It was, it was amazing. Very hot, of course, but um, we saw a lot of road cyclists there and, in fact, everywhere we went, there were a lot of cyclists and the bike shops we went to were all super cool, really nice. Look, fixed gear is still a massive thing as well over there. I went to a few fixed gear shops. They do like their expensive bikes and their expensive kit in Japan, don't they? Yeah, they're not mucking around. I, I had a saying the other day about uh, from an Australian that said, we're not here to fuck spiders. No, they're not. They've like Everything was like envy wheels. <laughs> it was like... They they really weren't mucking around. We went into this bike shop and there's just like rows of all the new like Cervelos in colours that I hadn't actually seen before. So I don't know whether that's an Asian like for Asia because I know I used to work in skateboarding and we used to do like like uh, colourways and stuff that was only for Japan. And when when we saw them at like the at the, the show, you go, "Whoa, look at those!" Like, yeah, you're not getting them in the UK. They won't sell, but they'll sell in Asia. It's like amazing, incredible. I'm I'm ready to go back. Osaka, sorry, I missed out Osaka. So I went to Osaka, and that is proper Blade Runner. What struck me about Tokyo was when you go to, if you're in London, you go to Piccadilly Circus, it's really loud, and there's traffic, and uh, you know, it's just really busy. Tokyo's really busy too, but I said, oh, as we're walking down the road, it's like, I can hear you talk, because no one's raising their voice. People are just talking as loud as they need to to the person next to them that they're trying to talk to. It was amazing yeah i'm ready to go back so yanto barker was on our uh, last edition i know that you uh, wanted to be on that edition with him didn't you i did i love yanto he's a dude uh we go way back um I, i'm just rather disappointed that he didn't talk about some of uh, some of his his first i mean like nicole's one thing but he's a founder member of the uh, cerveza test team and what is that exactly it's uh a, a, like a drinking club <laughs> I don't think he does it anymore, but I think he was doing it while he was still riding. But um, but yes, uh, he's done a lot of stuff. In fact, one of the first nights I ever met Yanto, we we had a we had a few bits. It was after the tour series, and he was riding back then for 
Lacole Colnago Pendragon. Do you remember that? Like years back. Yeah. This is probably 10 years ago, I expect. And uh, we had a funny night out. So my, my, my mate Patrick took us out and introduced us because he was talking about starting Lacole and whether I had any ideas for him. We went out, had dinner. So we're sitting there and the girls come around and she's taking our order. And I've never actually seen anyone swoon like a 1950s starlet. But this girl, she was, Yanto was like giving us, giving her his order for dinner. We did as well. And Patrick in the end went, hello, I'm over here. Because <laughs> oh, she couldn't take her eyes off Yanto. But, you know, he's a good looking fella. He's a good looking fella. And he's funny too. But it, but he's he's quite passionate about Lacole and you know I don't know whether you know he he was he was that funny. I mean he didn't mention the Cerveza testing, which I'm disappointed about. Uh, thank you, Stuart. You are listening to the Ruler Podcast, supported by Lacquer Bicycle Insurance, powered by the community. I'm Mark Williamson, and I've been a Lacquer customer since the start of 2019, so about eight months now. So I was on this new bike and stopped off at a coffee shop at a hotel just to send a few emails and make a call. Came out and found someone had taken off um, the headset at the front. They'd cut the braking gear cables, they'd unscrewed the handlebars and stolen the, the, the bars and shifters. Lacquer were phenomenal, actually. I was blown away by both the immediacy and the kind of helpfulness of the support. They seemed keen to help. Uh, and it was just a remarkably hassle-free experience. I couldn't have been happier with the service despite being incredibly frustrated that somebody had decapitated my uh, my new bike. And Ruler readers and podcast listeners can sign up for free insurance throughout September on the Lacquer website using the code FREESEPT. That's L-A-K-A co.uk. Now, Stuart, while you have been swanning around the world, I've been doing your job for you, uh, going to the launch of new bikes, including the excellent new range from Orbea. So what you need to do now, in a sort of role reversal type thing, is to actually introduce me. <laughs> this is novel. Hi, I'm Stuart. This You're listening to the Ruler Podcast. Now, over to Ian that's going to tell you about stuff that I'm supposed to tell you about. Oh, thank you, Stuart. I'm with Joseba Aridzaga, uh, Road Product Manager of Orbea, and I'm here for the launch of their new Orca OMX. Uh, we'll talk about the bike in a minute, but uh, first, let's talk about Orbea, the company, because it's a very different bike company to most, isn't it? And uh, for a start, it's, it's very proudly Basque. Yes, that's right. We are Basque and there are some uh, features in the Basque uh, people that make also the Orbea business different compared to others. For one thing, you're actually a cooperative, aren't you? Yes, that's right. We are a cooperative as many companies in the Basque country where it's a cultural feature to be cooperative uh, where the employees, we are the, also the owners of the, of the companies. And also, uh, again, unusually, you have factories in Europe um, rather than in the Far East. We realize that we are important for the Basque Country development. We have a factory in the Basque Country in Malavia where we are 300 employments. Uh, so we need to keep safe these employments and uh, we don't want 
to move anywhere else because we believe that uh, some of the richest things in the Basque country is to keep the employment in, uh, in the country. The other thing about the Basque country, of course, is it's absolutely at the heart of Spanish cycling, isn't it? In fact, it, in some ways, it sort of is the, the centre of Spanish cycling. Um, why is that, do you think? Probably it's a fact of, uh, of culture. Uh, Basque country has been uh, uh, the area where uh, uh, a lot of uh, races were in the Basque country. Basque people, we love sports, so we support any kind of a sport and we are very involved to support the, the sport as entertainment but at the same time also it's a region where there are a lot of clubs, cycling clubs or uh, rowing clubs or uh, mountain or hiking clubs so uh, the people not only we are supporters of any sport but also it's part of our culture to educate uh, the people practicing the sport since they are children. So. This special culture makes that uh, all the riders in Spain, everybody who wants to prove that he's capable to be a professional rider, he wants to ride in the Basque Country and to compete in the Basque Country. So this has been happening for a very long time and still is the country in Spain where we have the uh, World Tour uh, category races as the Basque Country Tour and the classic San Sebastian that they are not in other parts of Spain. A lot of that is due to the the, the, the surroundings, the mountains and the, and, and the roads around here. I had a, a taste of that today with uh, riding the Orca OMX. It is a great place to be a cyclist, isn't it? It's a great place to be a cyclist if you love mountains. This is the reality because, uh, for example, all the Basque riders, they are good climbers. It's pretty difficult to find one uh, good sprinter or a guy that is able to perform pretty well on the flat. Here, all the surround, it's hilly and mountains, not that high. Even if we are close to the Pyrenees, we don't have uh, uh, super high uh, altitude mountains, but the, the terrain is very challenging, very self-demanding. So uh, you will find a good uh, climbers in the Basque country and did this push people's to really perform well, to try to show that he's capable to be a, a good rider. You had some interesting things to say earlier on about the bike market and the way that people's, the buyers' tastes are changing. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Well, let's say that the society in general is changing very quickly and uh, we realize that uh, there is not only one evolution in terms of materials or technologies around a bicycle. This is happening for sure. Uh, just one example is that uh, we have more carbon fiber parts on the, in a bicycle. Uh, we are moving from the rim brakes to the disc brakes. But uh, in addition to that, we realize that consumers, uh, they also are changing and the consumers they are not only focused in which kind of material and bicycles are using the professional riders that has been for a long time the inspiration and the motivation to practice the cycling but today social media uh, channels like instagram youtube and so on uh, internet at the end of the day they cause that uh, uh, the consumer is the center of almost everything. They, they want to show their experiences, they want to share their experiences and uh, what they buy, how they use, and uh, 
this is social, it's happening everywhere. So this gives the opportunity also to uh, change the approach on, on the way we design bicycles and focus really in the, what is the expectation of the guy who is going to buy one or buy a bicycle. So it's much less about do I look like I'm riding the Tour de France, but it's much more about can this bicycle get me somewhere where I can take a good picture for Instagram? In part, yes, because it's obvious that a bicycle has a, a performance. Uh, we always want to have a light bicycles that has a good grade of stiffness, that they could be aired or not, uh, uh, to make us riding faster or not. But in the end, uh, it's obvious that uh, this is inside that bicycle. Uh, we don't need to show this anymore. When we talk with pros, yes, of course, we are talking about pure performance. The conversation with a pro, it's around these turns. But uh, when we talk with one consumer, he is assuming that this is inside this bike. Uh, but explain to me and told to me about the emotional things that could make me uh, motivated and excited to practice cycling and share that with my friends. This is how we understand that uh, the consumers are changing today. You mentioned disc brakes there and you were saying that 95% of your production now is bikes with disc brakes. In fact, it's, it's pretty hard to get an Orbea with rim brakes. The dealers, they already decide to go strongly through the disc brake and uh, the number of orders of uh, bicycles where both uh, standards are uh, available, it's 90-95% uh, for the disc brake. And yet the professional peloton is still probably about 50% now, isn't it, using, uh, using rim brakes still? Yes, this is, we need to take uh, in consideration that the uh, competition itself, it has a different logistic uh, there is a peloton, there are uh, crashes, uh, there are flat tires, uh, there are tracks, there are carts with bicycles, we need to replace one wheel. So uh, it's true that in the, in the last years we have been working in that called uh, trial period where we needed to test everything in order to get used to make the final change. So uh, there is no declaration about uh, if in some moment it's going to be one, okay, now we are going to write on this. Maybe this will happen. I don't know. It's something that the UCL has to decide. But meanwhile, what I'm seeing is that many teams in the World Tour, and not only in the World Tour, are already riding with the disc brake. I have seen many riders in the Tour de France. I have seen even some riders like Alaphilippe declaring that uh, it was a great advantage to have in some descents of the mountains in the Alps and Pyrenees the, the, the disc brake because this make me faster and more safe to coach the, the people breaking away. So uh, it's a reality that it, it's not that happening only because the brands, we are pushing the riders to use the disc brake. They will decide to move in that direction and they are deciding that it's safe to move in that direction and it looks like today the problem is not to have one rider riding with disc in the peloton but the guys that are not riding the disc brake, they are causing more problems because their brake uh, performance in the peloton is not that uh, good as is the disc brake. Now tomorrow we're going to take that lovely orca 
OMX that I was riding today and put 32 millimeter tires on it or something. That's mm -hmm. that's another thing that you're uh, you're very enthusiastic about. Yes, because I understand that the Sunday Warriors, like we are, not the pros, uh, we okay. We want to ride a, a a Tour de France or a competition level bicycle, and there is a performance on that. But actually, we are not that trying as professionals. We are not riding 30,000 kilometers in a year. So any help in terms of comfort is something that I will really appreciate like consumer. Assuming that, and the fact that uh, in more and more pro races also, we are seeing that uh, dirty roads or gravel segments are uh, on these competitions, we need to design a much more capable bicycle. So we decided to make uh, the Orca OMX compatible with tires up to 32. So this uh, delivers a super good comfort that uh, when we are riding in the dirty roads or uh, gravel roads, even if uh, we are riding in the, in the asphalt, when you are riding for three or four hours, uh, you feel much better and less tired than riding uh, standard racing 25 or 28 seat tires. The other thing that Orbea have been uh, big supporters of um, is the Fundacion Euskadi. Well, many of us have very fond memories of the orange jerseys in the, in the peloton from a few years ago. Um, but the team is still going, isn't it? Except just not at the moment in, in the World Tour. The Fundacion Euskadi, it's a, a foundation, a club, who is not only in the, in the pro peloton or in the competition, but also is, going, is doing a very good job uh, educating young children to practice cycling in a safe way. So it's also this social activity. And uh, it's true that uh, during 20 years, the team has been at a uh, top level, uh, competing in the Tour de France, Volta, Giro d'Italia, and the best races. And unfortunately, uh, at some moment, uh, they didn't get budget enough to keep on doing that uh, level of team. So for the few years, they have been uh, working uh, locally with elite and under-23 uh, young guys, trying to promote them to be a good, uh, a good riders, and they did, because actually riders like uh, Michelanda, the Izaguirre brothers, Pello Bilbao, that today are really good professionals, they came from the, the Fundación Euskadi. It happened something two years ago that uh, Miguel Madariaga, uh, who was the man who uh, founded the Fundación Euskadi and uh, worked with that, he decided to, to retire uh, because he's already 70. He said, okay, I, I need to, to retire, but Mikel Landa, the rider of Movistar team, who has been formed like rider in the Fundación Euskadi, he spoke with Mr. Madariaga and they agreed that uh, Mikel would be the president of the Fundación Euskadi. So even being one pro rider in the Movistar, uh, he is the president of the Fundación Euskadi. The reason is that he wants to return to the Fundación Euskadi all the things the Fundación Euskadi has kept uh, to him and uh, the possibility to become a pro rider. So Mikel is very determined to really keep on working with the Fundación, try to 
make the, the continental team is today in a superior category, and why not one day to again has this uh, Fundación Euskadi team riding the Tour de France or Giro d'Italia or Vuelta España. It's something very emotional for, uh, for us like uh, Basque and uh, knowing the history of, uh, of this foundation that already is 25 years. Well, it would be great to see them back. Uh, Joseba, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you to you, Jan. You are welcome whenever you want to visit us and to ride in the Basque Country Road. Joseba Arazaga. And if you do get a chance to ride your bike in the Basque Country, do. It's amazing. But if you've got climbing legs, uh, bring them along because it is really hilly. Now, if you've been following the Vuelta and following Rouleur on social media, you'll have come across the tips and insights of Cycling Mole, the cycling insider who seems to know who's going to win stages before the riders and the teams know themselves. And delighted to say he's on the line. Uh, I guess my first question, Cycling Mole, is what should I call you? Um, Would you like to be known as uh, Cycling Mole or do you have a real name? You you can go for David, you can go with Cycling Mole. It's um, I'm many different things to many different people. Okay. Um, how come you know, or certainly give the appearance of knowing, so much about cycling and uh, bike racing? I think it's because I'm a proper cycling geek. So my love affair with cycling started many, many years ago, watching Tour de France on Channel 4. And basically, I consume cycling races. I watch every minute of every race that's on TV uh, I analyse to the nth degree kind of what's happening in races. Obviously, I write previews as well. So a lot of work goes into the previews in terms of kind of working out what exactly is going to happen in each stage and trying to get it right kind of pleases people. Uh, When I get it wrong, people are often quite happy to to point and say you got it wrong. So a lot of time and effort goes into kind of making sure I get predictions as close to correct as possible. And at what point did you realise you sort of crossed over from just being a fan who was interested in it into someone who could actually have opinions that people are interested in? I think, I was just trying to think back, I think I joined Twitter in about 2012 possibly. And then from there, like I'd only ever just watched cycling, occasionally bought a magazine about cycling and and really kind of didn't get into it that much. And then when I was on Twitter, I realised that there was this whole other world and whole other community about cycling. And I, I could read uh, people writing previews. And it wasn't that long. I kind of I read a few previews and thought, this is garbage. They don't know what they're talking about. I know far more than them. And that's kind of my overinflated ego kind of pushed me into doing what I thought I could do better than anybody else. Have you ever raced a bike yourself? Have you ever been a, a bike racer? No, that's the that's the, the weird thing about it. Uh, when I was growing up, football was my, my sport. Even as an adult, football was always my sport. Uh, cycling, I love to watch, but the kind of time-consuming part of it was just too much for our family. And then even now that I don't play football anymore because I'm too old, running's my, my sport of choice in terms of what I like to do. But cycling is the my passion. So that's kind of, it's quite weird. And people sometimes struggle to understand how I can know so much about cycling, yet I don't actually cycle as much as, as they do. So when you're uh, looking at a stage profile or when you're looking at a team roster or you're looking at a race that's coming up, what is it you're looking for? What are the key things that you're looking for to make your predictions? Well, if I'm looking at a a normal stage, say one of the stages of the Welter, I'll sit down, I'll have a look at the official profile, which is often incorrect. 
I'll then go to Veloviewer, which is an amazing tool for anybody who's looking at uh, analysing even their own kind of runs or cycle cycle rides and stuff. Veloviewer is amazing. So that has a far better and more accurate look at kind of gradient and altitude gain. Altitude gain is the main one. So you're looking to decide whether or not it's going to be a sprint stage or whether it's going to be a breakaway stage or it's a mountain stage. So that's purely done on altitude gain. So if you're talking less than 2,000 metres, nine times out of ten, that's a sprint. Once we get over 2,000 metres of altitude gain, that's when you have to start looking at, okay, how many climbs are there? Where's the last climb? Is it 20k from home? Is it 50k from home? Because obviously that has an impact on a sprint team if they're going to chase or not. Then you've got to decide if it's going to be a breakaway day or a GC day. And people who have been following Top Maniana will know that it's, it's actually really hard to predict sometimes what's going to be a breakaway day and what's going to be a GC day, especially in the welter. You look at the wind, you look at the weather, you look at the teammates who's strong, you look at the form, you look at the type of finish, whether it's a technical finish, if it's a sprint, if it's an uphill finish, what's the percentage? Is it going to favour a Valverde, a Lopez? You look at the GC picture in terms of who might get freedom to attack, like uh, on Sunday. So Pogachar got away because he wasn't a massive threat on GC. I didn't predict that one. don't think anybody did. So as all these different things go into just predicting a single stage of a single race. So it's a, it's a huge amount of work. It's not just something you can watch one stage and just decide, oh, I know who's going to win now. You know, for every stage, you're talking a good couple of hours work. I was going to ask, how much time does this um, take up? Because it's it, it's not your job, is it? No, no, it's not my it's not my job. I don't get paid to to write previews. Uh, I do it out of the, the fun of the enjoying the kind of what I, what I write, and I like people to see what I write and hopefully get it correct. It will take between one hour to two hours to write a proper good preview, and a good preview doesn't have to be five thousand words. It can be. 800 words, but it still takes time to plan all of that out uh, and and then get it written down and then eventually kind of put all those thoughts together and come up with a rider. Have you thought about offering your services to uh, a pro team? I mean, you could be in one of the uh, DS cars, couldn't you? I could. And one of the things that people sometimes tell me, which is always nice to hear, I'm, I'm fairly good friends with a number of riders and quite often they'll say they read my previews uh, they'll say that their DS isn't very good in that particular race, so they always read my previews to find out exactly what's happening. I've planned a number of strategies with riders before races in terms of when they should attack and what they should be doing and things like that. So I have worked unofficially with a number of riders in the past uh, and will continue to do that. I don't think the teams are in a position to kind of want somebody like me to do this type of thing. I think all the DSs are very, very educated in terms of bike riding they all come from bike riding pass so i don't ever see them kind of looking to an outsider to tell them how to run their team or how to run their strategy so this is going out before the end of the welter we've already seen uh, quite a few changes in leads what's your feel about an overall winner it's looking like roglic before the race started i was thinking lopez and he has gone very well he crashed obviously on sunday we'll never really know what would have happened? Uh, but he was quite far ahead of the others, I think, when he crashed. So that was really unfortunate. Roglic also crashed. He came back like a a man possessed and just rode all the way back up almost to Quintana as well. But the time trial is going to be the big day. Roglic could potentially put 
a minute 30 to two minutes into his rivals and and that's going to be very very difficult to claw back on paper the final week isn't actually as hard as weeks one and two but that's on paper have you had a chance yet to look at the yorkshire world's course have you got any thoughts about the men's or women's uh, road race yeah i watched it uh, when they did they did a lap of it in the tour of yorkshire uh not the full lap i think they did a kind of shortened version so i watched that again i've had a look at the route it seems very hilly that we have a number of really really strong teams i think obviously everybody's looking towards matthew van der poel after his simply amazing ride in amstel gold and other races so far this season the dutch have a strong team the belgians have a team which is just like it's dripping with talent you know you're talking van avermaet gilbert nason benoot Stuyven, who won recently, the, the Belgians have a ridiculously strong team and they're not simply going to roll round and let Van der Poel take them on the line. It is hard. It will be a hugely demanding day in the saddle and I could see it being almost like an elimination race, but one which is very, very tactical. Teams like Italy are simply, again, they're not just going to be there and, and let the Belgians dictate it. There are so many riders who look like they're on form. We've got so many riders who are having their best ever season. You know, look at Julian Alaphilippe. He has to be up there. He will certainly be one of the big contenders. It's got an absolute classic day written all over it. I hope it lives up to my expectations. I think it's it surely should be one of the best worlds in a long, long time. Now, listen, if people are not aware of your predictions and your work, what's the best place for them to find it? Well, they can follow me on Twitter, at CyclingMo. Uh, my previews are all published on cyclismointernational.com, which is really cool because I write them in English and my editor, Pablo, translates them into Spanish. So we have about, for the Vuelta, about 5,000 people reading the English previews and about 5,000 people reading the Spanish previews so if you are bilingual you can read both of them if you're really greedy but yeah so on Twitter or at the website is the best place to read my work. Uh, Listen David thank you very much for joining us and uh, keep up the good work. Cheers thanks very much for having me. Okay that's it from this podcast thanks to Stuart thanks to Orbea and thanks to David the Cycling Mole with a bit of luck next time we catch up I will be at the Worlds in Yorkshire so see you then. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.